This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 370th episode, we have our best of 2021. All right. I'm excited. There was a lot that happened this year. Yeah. Yeah, You could say that every year. Yeah. (laughs) But it seems to be more and more every year. This one might have been slightly less than 2020. I'm not sure. It was a lot, though. A lot of good dinosaurs. Yeah, that's true. That's the majority of our best of is all the new dinosaurs that were named, or at least a lot of them. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Asylosaurus. And I have two of my favorite fun facts from this year. I picked a, a carnivore one and an herbivore one to balance it out. Couldn't decide between the two. Why not both? It was hard to narrow it down even to two because I really enjoy all of my fun facts. You could get a favorite child. but <laughs> They're so fun. There are 50 of them plus to choose from. Mm-hmm. To just pick one? No, I can maybe two. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And we have a new patron this week, a Matto Titan, which is a great name. Mm-hmm. Matt with a Natto Titan. You get a Matto Titan. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Fantastic. And rounding out our shout outs, we've got Graham, Jared Copeland, Daniel McGill, Dino Moe, Eric, Verociraptor, Anne, Paula Canthus, and the Tolbert family. Thank you so much, everyone. I think one of our big accomplishments this year is being able to reach so many listeners and meet so many new people. Yeah. That, of course, includes our patrons, which we're very, very grateful to have. And this year we crossed the 200 patron threshold and we did that Q&A live stream too. Mm -hmm. So obviously we wouldn't have made it there without all the wonderful patrons who joined. So thank you all so much. We had some other big accomplishments this year. Like we got out our holiday gift guide. By the time this airs, we're getting to the end of the holiday season. But, you know, there's never a bad time to buy a gift for somebody. (laughs) Could just be a regular dinosaur gift guide. Yeah, yeah. We also put up our Bone Wars quiz, which a lot of people took. It was fun to see. See how well you know the Bone Wars? The dinosaurs specifically from the Bone Wars, yeah. Mm. And in general, we got a lot more content on our website. In addition to our podcast episodes, We've, for example, we recently released a new article. This was a guest post by one of our listeners and patrons, Taylor McCoy, all about the holotype of T-Rex. So you can check that out. And we'll be releasing more stuff in the coming months. So, you know, things to look out for. As Garrett mentioned, we also reached 200 patrons. So we did our live stream. I think we did a few live streams this year. Yeah, we did the one with the watch party with Tara and Terry all Mm -hmm. about their documentary. And 
Garrett live streamed playing Ark Survival Evolved. Oh, yeah. With my mic volume so low that you can barely hear me. <laughs> <laughs> I think cooler than that was we did the t-shirt design contest and we got so many awesome t-shirts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We bought something of each design because they were all so cool. I got a lot of t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're wonderful. Sabrina got a lot, too. Oh, yeah. Rare... It's now most of my wardrobe, I think. Really? I don't believe that. Uh, well... It's most of what I've been wearing this year. Okay. And then, of course, we had SVP 2021 online, which, if you've been following along the last few weeks, that's mainly what we've been covering. Yep. And for our patrons, of course, there's the bonus content, which is now recorded and coming to you soon. I think one of them should be out by the time this episode comes out. Okay. (laughs) But without further ado, let's jump into the best of 2021. (laughs) (laughs) years kind of blurred together so we're going to kick it off with our favorite stories excluding the new dinosaur discoveries so like the other science stories and other stories in general about dinosaurs i think my favorite might be the evidence of cannibalism in tyrannosauroids that we talked about in episode 333 oh this was about that foot bone that was being chewed on actually the foot bone was an earlier paper That was the one with the parallel scratch marks where it looks like they were scraping flesh off the bone. We did talk about that, though, because it was like another piece. This one was more about a femur, which had a bunch of marks on it. And it kind of looked like a T-Rex had bitten off a leg to scamper off with it or something because it had a really deep gouge, basically where the hip attachment is. Mm -hmm. So there's just like this massive scrape slash puncture in it there's also a big hole (laughs) through a vertebra that got bit the authors think that that vertebra came from a juvenile and it could have been a t-rex so might have been a t-rex you know chewing on the tail of another (laughs) t-rex in that case and that was the one where we talked about how it was a puncture and collapse bite It was the first time it's been seen in a tyrannosaurid bite, which basically means that rather than just poking a hole like a regular puncture that we see in all sorts of different animals all the time, because it's it's actually not that uncommon for animals to bite each other and produce holes through their heads or other parts of the body. We heard that that happens with dogs. Yeah. Somebody told us that their dog got bit through the head. I think it was their two dogs. One of them bit the other one Mm -hmm. on the face and poked a hole through it so yeah a lot of animals can do that obviously dogs can't bite nearly as strong as tyrannosaurs but in this case the tyrannosaur bit so hard that not only did it puncture but then the bone actually collapsed like if you have a piece of tubing and you tried to stab something through it and rather than just poking a hole it sort of like collapsed the tube that's basically what happened with this bite sounds like it was hard to be a tyrannosaur well or really easy If you're trying to get at some bone marrow. Oh, that's true. (laughs) And the reason we can identify most of this stuff as tyrannosaur cannibalism is usually the tyrannosaurids had pretty unique teeth for their ecosystem. So it's relatively easy to match these big, bulky teeth with the puncture wounds that you see on other bones. And a lot of times, too, the serrations, the scrape marks like on that toe bone from a while back. That paper also mentioned that there are several modern cannibalistic dinosaurs, including red-tailed hawks, the great gray owls, and crows can all be cannibals. Hmm. 
I was the most surprised by crows. Yeah, me too. Because it's, I always think of them as like having a little society and being smart and they like mourn their dead and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while they eat each other, I guess. I guess. You don't let food go to waste. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that they kill each other. But if there's, like you said, don't want food to go to waste. Another favorite story, well, I should say episode of ours this year was episode 350, our milestone episode, which... I believe, Garrett, you titled Hadrosaur Hootenanny. Oh, yeah. It was about a bunch of hadrosaur lumps and splits. We covered over 50 different types of hadrosaurs. Oh, yeah, you really got in the weeds on that. You made my fun fact rabbit holes or Erictodromius burrows look like nothing. (laughs) (laughs) That one. Well, if you're going to do a special episode, you might as well go deep. Yep, and we also had Albert Prieto Marquez join and... Tell us about all his work mm-hmm. with hadrosaur lumps and splits over time. So if hadrosaurs are your favorite kind of dinosaur, then that episode's for you. And as a quick reminder, hadrosaurs are also known as duck-billed dinosaurs. They're herbivores. They got the dental batteries. They include a lot of pretty well-known dinosaurs. Yeah, and I think Albert Prieto Marquez was, when we asked him what he thought about duckbill as a term, was like, yeah, it's good. So we might go back to using that. (laughs) Everybody does. We thought it was a little too simplistic before talking to him about it because ducks don't have teeth. But Mm. I guess their overall head shape is pretty duck-like in some ways. Yeah. I guess it's fair. (laughs) Another really interesting article was about nesting dinosaurs that lived at the poles. And it finally answered the question of whether or not dinosaurs migrated to the poles just to, you know hang out for a little while and then they would migrate south especially the herbivores when there wasn't any food to eat potentially Mm -hmm. for long periods of time because it was in complete darkness and since they found all these babies there we're now pretty confident that year round there were a whole bunch of dinosaurs living up in alaska basically they lived through the darkness yeah this the prince creek formation was at 82 degrees north latitude in the late Cretaceous. It's now significantly lower at 70 degrees, but, you know, 90 degrees is the maximum. And those eight degrees are actually closer together. As you get closer to the equator, the the latitude lines spread out. So near the poles, those eight degrees aren't that much of a difference. It's like it's very close to the North Pole. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if those dinosaurs got seasonal affective disorder. I hope they could like hibernate or at least do some kind of torpor situation so they didn't have to just be up in the darkness all the time. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, because one of the estimations was that the dinosaurs would basically lay their eggs right when the sun was starting to come up in the spring, which would mean in the winter they'd have to be incubating those eggs. It'd be sort of like the penguin situation oh, yeah. at the South Pole. Could they sleep on top of the eggs? I don't know. Maybe. I I mean, they're pretty. a lot of these are pretty heavy That's animals. True. Much heavier than penguins. Because there, there were at least seven groups that we know of from both tiny teeth and mature teeth in the formation. So we know that they both nested there and lived there as adults including a troodontid, a dromaeosaurid, an ornithopod, a ceratopsid, a hadrosaurid, another ceratopsid, and a tyrannosaurid. That's so many types that lived in the darkness. Yeah, and we've got predators and prey in the mix, small herbivores, large herbivores, really like all of the dinosaurs, right? So some of those, you know, if you're talking about 
maybe an ornithopod or a dromaeosaurid especially, they could probably sit on their nest because the dinosaurs had pretty thick eggshells and they had feathers in, the, in some cases. So maybe they could just hang out. Maybe they could sleep, catch some Zs while they're incubating. But I don't know, like a ceratopsian? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Or a hadrosaurid? They might be too big. Even a tyrannosaur. It's possible, though, that they could have slept in the middle and had that arrangement kind of around the edge Mm -hmm. of the body. And then they're still in contact with the eggs, just not sitting on top of the entire egg. Right. But I don't know. In in a cold environment like that, it might need a little more coverage. They might have to sort of squat over it or come up with some other strategy to keep the eggs warm. Yeah. Compost combination. I don't know. It wasn't super cold. It wasn't as cold there then as it is now. The mean annual temperature was estimated at about 6 degrees Celsius or 43 degrees Fahrenheit. And although it did reach about negative 10 Celsius or 14 Fahrenheit, and at those temperatures, you definitely need to be doing some incubating because you can't let your eggs freeze. That's no good. There are also some really amazing, super tiny fossils that came with this. They had basically all of the bones or a lot of the bones on a penny And most of them were around the size of a pinhead. Oh, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) So tiny. They're really amazing micro fossils. And that included a lot of teeth, but there were actually some bones in the mix, too. It's impressive that they were even found. Yeah, yeah. There's more research going into these micro fossil sites that we see now where you can basically take what would normally be like refuse from a site where you found a bunch of other dinosaur bones, and then you can go through it with a fine-tooth comb, basically, and try to find if there's anything good in there. There are automated methods to do that, too, which could definitely be helpful when you're looking for these little tiny things. But, yeah, the the final way they decided that they probably were spending year-round there wasn't just because of the fact that there were babies there, because it's possible that the baby dinosaurs would hatch, and then they would migrate together. But they figured out that at 82 degrees north latitude... In order to get out of the Arctic Circle, you know, so that there's sunlight a lot of the year, you have to go all the way down to 23 and a half degrees from the pole, which is a really long walk, especially for a newly hatched dinosaur. So even if they hatched right on the first day of spring, these dinosaurs took about six months in some cases to hatch, and it's just not feasible. They probably had to just stick around year round and deal with the negative aspects of living in darkness for six months. Yeah, I can't imagine. I need my sunlight. Another favorite from this year was a nickname for one of the fossils found, Beautiful Nightmare. Maybe that one sounds familiar because we talked about it pretty recently in episode 363. This was a partial skull found in North Dakota in the U.S., and they're saying it could be a nanotyrannus. The reason for the nickname isn't that it was a nightmare to dig up this fossil, but rather that the fossil or the dinosaur back in the day was a, quote, nightmare in her day to a lot of other critters. Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll wait and see if it's a nanotyrannosaur, if it's a juvenile (laughs) T-Rex. Yeah, I think you said something similar when we first talked about it. Anytime we say nanotyrannus, I feel the need to give the caveat of pretty much everyone thinks nanotyrannus is a juvenile (laughs) T-Rex. Although there, I mean, there are some reasonable arguments to say that it, Nanotyrannus is a valid genus, but just at this point, most people say it's juvenile T-Rex. Yeah, but science always changes. Yeah, beautiful nightmare could prove it wrong. Yeah, who knows? 
if we find something that has that nanotyrannus skull, which is all the holotype is, with a complete skeleton, and we see all sorts of differences in the skeleton, then all of a sudden nanotyrannus is valid again. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be the first time that's happened with a dinosaur name. Another interesting story from the year, of course, was the auctioning of Big John, the world's largest triceratops skeleton. And we talked about that in episode 354 and 362. Big John sold for nearly 8 million U.S. dollars, which is a lot higher. It's about 6.6 million euros, and it was estimated to only sell for like 1 to 1.5 million euros, so much, much higher. And Big John was found in South Dakota. There's something like 60% of the skeleton was found in more than 200 pieces. And there was a lesion on the skull, possibly from another triceratops that struck it. So it's not just tyrannosaurs that are fighting each other or oh, biting yeah. each other. <laughs> for sure, ceratopsians with those big horns. We've thought for a while that in addition to defending themselves against predators, likely had some sort of intraspecific combat, you know, fighting for mates, showing dominance, fighting for territory could be a lot of different uses. Yeah. I think we've we've seen a fair number of scrape marks on ceratopsian frills that look like they match with ceratopsian horns. <laughs> yeah, that's true. A private collector bought Big John, so there was a lot of controversy around this sale. Mm, yep. It is controversial when you have a super scientifically interesting and useful specimen being removed from the scientific world that can't be studied. Hopefully it gets donated at some point. We have some favorite feel-good stories from the year. One was about a four-year-old who found a dinosaur footprint in Wales. And now that footprint is on display at the National Museum Cardiff. And it's called Lily's Fossil Footprint because Lily's the one who found it. And we talked about that in episode 324 and 349. It's pretty impressive at four years old. I know. anything. It's amazing. I hope she grows up to be a paleontologist. And the fossil is also one of the best preserved of its type from anywhere in the UK. So extra cool. And it's from an herbivorous dinosaur from the late Triassic. Late Triassic. Mm-hmm. That's an important time period in terms of dinosaur evolution. Yes. Another fun story from the year was the Chrome Dinosaur Game had an Olympic twist we talked about this in episode 348. We made a video about it, too, because I had to play and try all the different Olympic <laughs> twists. Yeah, it was like a T-Rex, and it was hurtling and riding a horse <laughs> was my favorite one. Oh, I liked the surfing. Oh, yeah. There's also the gymnastics and running. I think those were the five. And it was great. You know, you could stumble at any point and end up with a medal. Yeah. <laughs> You get a, I think it was a gold medal every time, too. Yeah. <laughs> and then another feel-good story from the year was this very inspiring story of India's youngest paleontologist. We talked about this in episode 360, where there's a 14-year-old girl, young woman, who is in India and has collected fossils from all kinds of things, marine invertebrates, vertebrates, including some dinosaur bones, microfossils. She's collected something like 136 fossils in four years, and she's given talks at schools and research institutes and museums, which is very impressive. So 
Just goes to show there's so many different paths to paleontology. Yeah, she's only 14. Mm-hmm. That's like almost 10 fossils per year. Oh, except she did it all in four years. Yes. So it's more like 30, 40 fossils per year. That's amazing. <laughs> and I should mention her name is Aswatha. She's already on the way to being a paleontologist, already presenting at schools and things. True. There's only two weeks left to sign up for one of the coolest dinosaur dig programs we've ever heard of. It's a two-week, actually 16-day, field program in the American West put together by this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, CNCC. If you've been listening to our show, you know that we're big fans of their dig programs. And it's no surprise that their first program only has three spaces left. That's not many spaces. No, and it's possibly less by the time you're hearing this. If you want to join the July 6th to July 20th dig, then make sure you sign up right now. That's the one with three spaces left. Yes. There are a few more spots left on the second dig, too, on July 22nd to August 5th. But it's also a good idea to sign up now before space runs out there. When you get to the field, you'll be taught by expert paleontologists from CNCC and experience a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. So go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all the details and make sure you register online by May 31st or preferably sooner. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. Sabrina and I love to find the best dinosaur museums around the world, and that requires a fair amount of traveling. A lot of times, those museums are off the beaten path. One of the most challenging museums to get to was the Mifune Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. The only way to get there is either by taxi or bus, and we very nearly got stranded because we couldn't read the bus schedule and there weren't taxis available, so it got a little bit dicey. Yes, we would have been in much better shape if we'd studied just a little more Japanese before that trip. Fortunately, we eventually managed to find our way thanks to some very kind and helpful people who work at the museum. A few more phrases, though, would have made a big difference for us. So we highly recommend preparing for your next big trip by signing up for Rosetta Stone at rosettastone.com dino. For a limited time, just for our listeners, you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership of all 25 of their language courses. The lifetime membership for all 25 courses is just $179, and normally that's $399, so it's a great deal. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. And now we're going to go on to all the new dinosaurs, at least, well, not all the new dinosaurs, our favorite new dinosaurs from 2021. We did cover new dinosaurs in almost every episode this year. Really? Wow. Yeah. And that still didn't cover all of them. Stay tuned for next year <laughs> where we'll be catching up. <laughs> yeah. It's always more new dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. It's the whole reason we started this podcast. Mm -hmm. So the first pair that I want to talk about are the new Spinosaurids we oh, talked yeah. about in episode 358. This is a good year for Spinosaurids. It really is. So these ones were both from the Isle of Wight on the southwest coast, Bryston Bay, in case you're familiar. And they're about 125 million years old, putting them in the early Cretaceous. They're from the same formation as Baryonyx, so they might have coexisted. So there could have been three Spinosaurids Ooh. on the Isle of Wight at that time. Just for reference, that's about 25 to 30 million years before Spinosaurus. The two new Spinosaurids are 
Ceratosuchops and Reparo Venator. Ceratosuchops, at least, is about 7 to 8 meters long, or about 25 feet, plus or minus a few feet, so a lot smaller than Spinosaurus, but maybe Baryonyx-ish. And we don't really have too much of either of them, but we have enough to know that Ceratosuchops had some large brow bosses, which is why its name means horned crocodile face. Mm -hmm. And we found the tail, as well as a bunch of other parts of Reparo Venator, and we can see that its tail is more like a typical theropod tail than a Spinosaurus tail. So somewhere in the next 30 million years. (laughs) Something changed. Yeah. Assuming that these are really closely related, it's possible there's some other dinosaur from 130 million years ago that has a Spinosaurus-like tail. So there we go. Kicking it off with two Spinosaurids from the same spot and where there already was a Spinosaurid. It's <laughs> a good start. <laughs> I also want to mention we're expecting more Spinosaurus updates next year because when we interviewed Nizar Ibrahim back in episode 344, he teased a bunch of Spinosaurus things that should be coming out soon. So hopefully 2022 will be another good year for Spinosaurus. The next one I want to mention I'm referring to as the longest time coming discovery. This one is Columolumo, and it's a sauropodomorph from South Africa. It was actually originally found back in 1955. Oh, I love those stories. <laughs> yeah, they excavated them over a few years. It was like 55, 56, 59, 63, and 1970, but it didn't get officially described until 2021. Worth the wait. I think so. It's a pretty cool one. It's a Triassic sauropodomorph, so it's got that typical bipedal stance, and it's relatively small for a sauropod, but it was actually pretty big for its time. And the name is really cool, too, Kalumalumo. It refers to a dragon-like monster from Soto folklore, and it's also sometimes called a giant lizard or crocodile. But more recently, it's been popular in quote-unquote cryptozoology with people thinking that it's out there and, you know, hunting for it or whatever. But people found it because they named a dinosaur after it. Whenever you say that name, I think of Dragon Ball Z. Kaluma Lumo? Mm-hmm. What's in Dragon Ball Z with that name? It sounds similar to what they say when they're powering up. Oh, <laughs> when they get the banana hair? Well, they always have that kind of hair. But it's not always the big yellow spiky hair. Oh, that's true. But it is spiky. Yeah. Kaluma Luma, though, is cool. I think we've got about 90% of it when you combine all the individuals. But unfortunately, the holotype is just a single right tibia because all the bones are so jumbled up that they couldn't differentiate any of them to know like which individual was together. It's just like you took a bunch of them and shuffled them together so they could <laughs> only pick one bone as the holotype. Based on the femur circumference from the bone bed, they think it weighed about two to four tons. And they were about 9 meters or 30 feet long as adults, which, again, for a sauropod, not that big. But for a Triassic sauropodomorph, pretty big. Yeah, I was just going to say, for a sauropodomorph, that's a decent size. Yeah. Another potential candidate for longest time coming is Rabinian Hadros, named after Anatoly Rabinian, who posthumously described the dinosaur in 1945. But then it wasn't officially named until 2021? Yeah, so when I say posthumously described, this was that crazy story where he stayed in Leningrad during the siege of Leningrad and eventually died probably of starvation, but Mm -hmm. he wanted to stay there to keep working and protect his collection. 
but he was really prolific in writing and super important to the field of paleontology. Oh, yeah. His name comes up all the time. It does. And I, I always need to remember, I always want to pronounce it Ryabinin, but I think it's pronounced Rabinian. That's good to know. We'll try to remember that going forward. Yeah. So this one, Rabinian Ohadros, you can probably guess by the Hadros part that it's a Hadrosaur. Although calling it a Hadrosaur might not be that accurate because it's not a Hadrosaurid. It might not even be a Hadrosauroid, but it might be in the larger group, Ankylopolexia. So we could just call it an ornithopod. And then we'd have our bases covered. Yeah. And we talked about that one in episode 321. Yes. And just for the record, it was considered relatively slender at about seven meters and approximately 23 feet long. And it was also late Cretaceous, pretty much latest Cretaceous, probably within the last 10 million years. This one was actually officially published in 2020, but we covered it in 2021. Oh, okay. That's, that's what we're going based on, <laughs> when we covered it, not when it was published. Because otherwise, it could have made it into the previous best of, but it wasn't eligible. Another really cool discovery was the surprise abelosaurid, which was found underneath a sauropod skeleton. Oh, yeah. And it's called Spectrovenator, which means ghost hunter. And it, quote, refers to the fact that the specimen was found unexpectedly underneath the holotype of Tapuyasaurus. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it was a ghost because it got squished or because it was already dead when that one fossilized. I don't know, but it's pretty fun. Mm -hmm. It turned out to actually be a pretty decent find, too, because they got a complete set of legs, hips, and quite a few vertebrae going into the back and tail from that point. So one could say that that sauropod skeleton helped preserve it. It might have helped draw attention to it. Why not both? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know if a dead dinosaur on top of another dinosaur helps preserve that dinosaur. Keeps it from some of the elements. Maybe. Could be. Yeah, good job, sauropod. Or it fell on it and killed it. And then mm -hmm. that seems unlikely, but that would also help preserve it because it can't fossilize if it's still up running around, I guess, <laughs> or it positioned itself in a way to help each other out. No. Yeah, probably that not. definitely didn't happen, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a pretty cool abelosaur. It was about two meters or seven feet long, so actually pretty tiny and only about one meter or three feet tall which makes it about a third the length of a Belosaurus, which already isn't particularly large for a theropod. But it is in good shape. It's a, it's a really nice find. And it's estimated to be between 115 and 125 million years ago. Well done, sauropod, keeping that Belosaur in good shape. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess we could end on that note. <laughs> There's also a couple of really cool Dromaeosaurids. One of them is the Velociraptor-like Dromaeosaurid Shri Devi, which we talked about in episode 328. Shri Devi is Sanskrit for a female protector deity in Tibetan slash Mongolian Buddhism. But protector deity is like not the whole story. Mm -hmm. That's the one where the, the picture that they even include in the article is Shri Devi riding a horse or donkey across an ocean of blood her accoutrements include a saddle of a flayed human skin, Ugh. the book of the law, and the dice of fortune. 
which is like, I guess that's a protector. That's but quite a picture. It sounds more like the Grim Reaper or something, mm-hmm. like a pretty intense figure. And Shri Devi is fairly aptly named too, because it has a sickle law, which is proportionally larger than velociraptors. Oh, the claws? Yes. Yeah, the, the big, scary sickle claw on mm-hmm. the second toe. Relative to uh, the metatarsal foot bone, it's actually slightly longer too. So like depending on how you look at it, it might be bigger in total. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. The claw is 91 millimeters or 3.6 inches long along the outer curve. And that doesn't include a keratin sheath. Yeah. So you could be talking about like half a foot of claw. And this is not on a large animal. It's velociraptor size. So you're talking <laughs> a couple meters long. With a giant claw. Yeah. It's intimidating. It's an intense animal. What was it protecting? Yeah. It's also a really well-preserved specimen. It's one of those beautiful Mongolian specimens where it's like 3D. The sandstone has it all propped up, basically, in a really pretty way. And it's got a good amount of the animal, especially the legs and back and tail. Several other foot claw bones, too. Hmm. There's also another velociraptor-sized dromaeosaurid, which was found this year. That's pretty important. This one was from Tajikistan. And we talked about it in episode 347. It was actually found back in the 1960s. So in some other years, that might get the winner of longest time coming. Right. But we <laughs> got one year. from the 50s. So. And one from the 40s. <laughs> so this one's named Consignathus. And it's from the Santonian, or about 85 million years ago, putting it significantly before Shri Devi and Velociraptor and a lot of other popular dromaeosaurs. Unfortunately, the only bone that was found was a single dentary, which is the lower jaw, without any erupted teeth. Oh. But it did have 12 tooth sockets, and there looked to be two unerupted teeth. So You can still learn a lot. Exactly. Yeah, if you're, if you're going to find one bone, usually part of the jaw or the maxilla with teeth in it is, mm-hmm. a, is really good, especially for dinosaurs that have unique serrations and things. If it's maybe a sauropod or something, it might not be the most useful with little disposable teeth churning out, but it's something like a velociraptor. It could be pretty handy. Again, the size estimate is just like velociraptor, about two meters long or six feet. And the coolest thing about it is that it fills in a 20 million year gap in the fossil record because we don't have a ton of stuff from that time period or really from Tajikistan in general. I think we only had one ceratopsian of note this year. What? At least there was only one I could find. I'm sorry if I missed one (laughs) to these ceratopsian fans. But that one is Menifee Ceratops, which is really cool. And as the title says, it's the oldest centrosaurine and a new ceratopsid, which was found in the Menifee formation, thus Menifee Ceratops. Yeah, we covered that one in episode 338 originally. Thanks for reminding. (laughs) I forgot to say that. So being a centrosaurine, it's in the same group that includes Styracosaurus. And they often have those big central horns and decorative frills. Yeah, that's one of the ways you can tell they're centrosaurine, usually. But of course, there are many exceptions to every rule, and this is one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't have much of a nasal horn. It's got two brow horns that curve forward a little bit, but it does have a pretty nice decorated frill. It's got specifically three bumps at the top of each side of the frill, so six total, three on each side, because they're 
every ceratopsian frill i've seen at least is symmetric there might be a couple that are slightly asymmetric but usually they're symmetric so a lot of times they only count one side and if you're familiar with xenoceratops it's a lot like that but with a slightly less decorated frill they also found quite a bit of the body which was cool including vertebrae from all over the body as well as ribs and a femur and a bunch of limb bones but again the really important thing is that it's the oldest centrosaurine ceratopsian that's because it's estimated to be late early campanian in other words about 80 to 84 million years ago pretty old for a ceratopsian yes although there are other older ceratopsians like zuniceratops which is at least 90 million years old but this is for a centrosaurine ceratopsian so you got to be a little bit specific to get that record I think the coolest hadrosaur we talked about this year was in episode 340, and that was Tlatolophus. Oh, yeah. Good job remembering how to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, the lateral fricative, just like Welsh. So Tlatolophus is named after the Tlatoli, which is this glyph that looks kind of like a comma. And Tlatolophus has a sort of comma-shaped head bump. <laughs> so it's sort of, if you take a Parasaurolophus and curl its head thing into like a comma shape on its head, then you've got a pretty good idea about what Tlatolophus looks like. So it's pretty cool. As you might have expected, it's from Coahuila, Mexico, like a lot of recent finds that are named in Nahuatl. And it's from the late Cretaceous about 73 million years ago, which is about the same age as Parasaurolophus, although very far away since Parasaurolophus is from basically Montana, mm -hmm. Alberta, Canada type area. It's also the most complete Lambiosaurine so far found in Mexico. And I think, based on what I've seen, it might be the second longest hadrosaur crest after Parasaurolophus. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Although it's a pretty distant second. Yeah, it's hard to beat that one. <laughs> but the full skull length is 104 centimeters or three foot five inches long. And about a quarter of that or a foot is just crest behind the head. <laughs> This is why we're so fascinated with how they sounded. Yeah, or what else they might have used them for, because it's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. In case you're curious, too, the full body size of Tlatolophus is estimated to be about 12 meters or 40 feet long, which could even be a little bit larger than Parasaurolophus. Even though it didn't have a bigger crest, it may have had a bigger body. Hmm. But what did it sound like? That's the real question. Isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> we need another paper for that. Probably more than one. Then in episode 342, we had the long-awaited Australotitan Cooperensis. Yes, we've been waiting for years for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's Cooper, the famous titanosaur from Australia, which we actually saw the holotype of in Aramanga mm -hmm. back in 2019 when we did our road trip. Yeah, it's a cool museum. It is really cool, and it's, it makes it a little more exciting when you really have to travel to get to it because it's like... You feel like you're sort of going out a little bit of an expedition, kind of like the people that found the bones in the first place. <laughs> but much less rough, but yeah. Yeah. It's officially the first named dinosaur from the Aramanga Basin, although we're expecting more to be named. And even though we saw it at the Aramanga Museum, it was found 100 kilometers west of Aramanga. But it's a really cool dinosaur, and it includes a complete right humerus which is really helpful for size estimates. Oh, yeah. As well as a bunch of other limb bones and hip bones and both partial femora. 
And they even referred a few bones from other localities to Australotitan, so it's not just Cooper. Comparing Humeri alone, it's clearly the largest Australian sauropod. Australotitan is about 1.5 meters or 4 foot 11 inches of humerus, whereas Diamantinosaurus, Savannosaurus, and Wintonotitan are all in the 1.1 to 1.2 meters of length range, which is, you know, about 20% smaller. And those are all from Winton, Queensland. So they're all from Queensland, but mm-hmm. <laughs> Aramanga has them beat out a little bit. The femur of Australotitan is about 1.9 meters or a little under six foot three inches long. <laughs> so the femur alone is about your height. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and that's also much, much larger than other Australian sauropods. The referred femur, so not the one in the holotype, but a different specimen, not Cooper, but a different Australotitan specimen, is estimated to be 2.15 meters or 7 foot 1 inches long. And even Australotitan's ulna, which is not usually that long of a bone, is over a meter long. So this is a very large dinosaur. They estimate that it weighed somewhere in the Footalongosaurus to Dreadnoughtus ballpark. <laughs> yep. With pretty, I mean, it's got a pretty big error margin, somewhere in the 24 to 74 ton range, just depending on how bulky, how much meat it had on it. And if you do an estimate of body length based on femur length, which is not the best way to do a body length estimate, but it's basically all we got. We don't have a whole lot of vertebrae to reconstruct. It brings it close to Argentinosaurus and Patagotitan, which is probably in the very roughly 30 meters or 100 foot long ballpark. But that's really, really, really loose. It could be like plus or minus 25 feet probably from that because we don't know how long its neck was or how long its tail was or anything. They also did a really cool job with 3D scanned cyber types on this one. Mm -hmm. It was just a really nice paper and a really cool discovery. Another one that was worth the wait. Definitely. And just a quick honorable mention to the oldest titanosaur found to date, which was described in 2021, and that's Ninja Titan, named after Sebastian Apestegia, who is nicknamed El Ninja. (laughs) It's a good nickname. (laughs) I just love that. His nickname's El Ninja, so they named it Ninja Titan. Uh, This one is very old. It's from the Bajada, Colorado formation in Patagonia, and it's between 134 to 140 million years old which the Cretaceous only started 145 million years ago. So it's almost edging into Jurassic. It's that old. Yeah. It's a crazy old titanosaur. It's ridiculous how old it is. It wasn't particularly huge or it it didn't have tons of really interesting features, but its age alone makes it. That's what happens when it's older. It tends to be on the smaller side, tends to not have as many unique characteristics. Yeah, but I mean, by Cretaceous time, Right. Oh, that's true. Especially for sauropods. What was it? 150 million years ago, we already had the biggest basically limit. And then it was just other groups. They sort of repeated that size. But yeah, it's possible that Volga Titan could be a little bit older, too, if it's valid. But Ninja Titan, definitely the oldest sauropod within Titanosauria, known for more than just a couple fragmentary bones. Now, I've got to do a couple of my favorite ankylosaurs. Of course, a couple. Well, one of them is really astonishingly cool, and that's 
<laughs> you say that about every ankylosaur. No, this is unlike any dinosaur ever found in history, really okay. any animal. It's Spicomelus or Spicomelus, and it's an ankylosaur that was found. The name means spike collar in Latin, and the bone that was found literally does look like a spiky collar, like a, like a dog collar with spikes sticking out of it. It's quite curved. And it has spikes sticking out of it, but we think it was a rib of an ankylosaur. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, episode 357. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy. It superficially looks a little bit like a thagomizer, that <laughs> spiky. But on its ribs, yeah. Yeah, it, nobody knows how this worked. Did they poke up through the skin or like what was going on? It's just ridiculous. And when they looked closely at it, they found that it's actually a partial rib with a osteoderm fused to it. And that's what the spikes are coming out of. It's like one giant osteoderm with multiple spikes on that osteoderm. It's the most ridiculous bone I've ever seen. I actually just looked it up again just to make sure that there hadn't been a paper saying like, oh, no, this wasn't an ankylosaur. We were wrong. It was some other thing because I'm still a little bit skeptical that it's even ankylosaur because it's so ridiculous that we don't have any ankylosaurs that are anything like this. Like the osteoderms grow in the skin mm-hmm. and they stick up and they protect it. They don't go down and fuse to the skeleton. It just never happens that we see. So I don't know. I mean, I guess in the tail clubs you get it a little bit, but it's crazy. Hopefully they find more fossils. I really hope so. It, it, it's such a cool bone. It's fascinating. They basically figured out it was an ankylosaur based on some subtle details of when they did like a thin section and saw that the osteoderm has what they call a plywood-like structure where it follows the curvature in a specific pattern. But man, it's a cool bone. Even if it <laughs> doesn't end up being an ankylosaur, it's still one of my favorite animals because it's just, it's so interesting. What was going on here? Yeah. It's also from the middle Jurassic, like 165 plus million years ago, which is really early for an ankylosaur. So it's just all over the place. Crazy interesting. So cool. I, I really, I like you, hope they find more of this because it's such an interesting animal. And then I have an honorable mention for another ankylosaur. It's a fossilized ankylosaur, which it didn't have a head. So we don't know what specimen, what species it was or genus, but it fossilized in a really cool resting posture with its like legs underneath it. Oh, it was found in Mongolia. We talked about it in episode 330 and it's just really nice preservation. It's got a whole bunch of ribs and osteoderms, basically more or less in place, a lot of it and the limbs and all sorts of stuff. It's just Mongolian fossils are some of my favorites because they often are preserved in that sort of lifelike pose mm-hmm. where you can get a lot of information about how they were situated when they fossilized. Sometimes it's nice to think of dinosaurs relaxing too. Not yeah, exactly. Fighting or in <laughs> flight mode. Yep. Yeah. Just hanging out. They, I think in one of the interviews were saying like it looks like it sort of like sat down and then that's how it fossilized. <laughs> <laughs> then I've got one last dinosaur for our favorite dinosaurs of 2021. And it is the Uzbekistani allosauroid named Ulubesaurus. The most interesting thing about it is that it was an allosauroid that's about 90 million years old. And it's in the same formation as an early tyrannosauroid, Timurlengia. Oh, yeah. It's weird that they're together. Well, it's kind of weird, but it, this is the fifth known example of a tyrannosauroid and an allosauroid in the same fauna. 
And in all five of those, including this one, the allosauroid is the larger individual. So it's basically another piece of evidence that the allosauroids were the apex predators and the tyrannosauroids were mesopredators. And with this one, it expands that range to now tens of millions of years where tyrannosauroids were these non-apex predators in their ecosystems. I remember this in episode 355. And then the question now is, what happened to the allosaurs? What made tyrannosaurs so dominant? Yeah. So the the general idea is that they went extinct on their own, more or less, maybe because the herbivores were changing in some way, their prey was changing or the ecosystem was changing somehow. And then when they went extinct, that's when the tyrannosauroids filled that niche. Mm -hmm. But we don't know for sure. Ulubesaurus was pretty big. It was probably mostly based on other allosauroids, about seven and a half to eight meters or 25 to 26 feet long. And they estimate it weighed over a ton, which doesn't seem like that much for that length. But allosauroids are a lot thinner than tyrannosauroids, at least in some cases. This formation is now the latest known formation with a tyrannosauroid and a carcharodontosaurid living together. And it beat the previous record by about five million years. Hmm. So we're starting to narrow in a little bit better on when that switch of allosauroid to tyrannosauroid as the apex predator happened. So now we know it was, at least in this formation, more recent than 90 million years ago and obviously less recent than 70, maybe 75 million years ago when we know tyrannosaurids were dominating all over the place. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos, Yes, that Thanos, named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. Plus, some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. 
One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. We've got a few other updates. I'll keep this a little more general because they were updates that we had in multiple episodes. <laughs> so for example, Jurassic World, there were a lot of things to talk about because there's all these previews coming out and teasers and all kinds of fun things to speculate on. The latest episode, the most recent episode where we talked about was 367, but we talked about it throughout the year. Then Massachusetts is practically got a state dinosaur it's not quite there yet <laughs> practically we were talking about it all year and they still don't have it quite yet it's under the last step i think our latest update was episode 361 so they'll get there soon and the update was that it needs to go to the senate the state senate and then the governor signs it and then it's official okay so two steps yeah but presumably they expect the governor to sign it and the senate and everything to go smoothly yeah People want this. <laughs> <laughs> there was, of course, the controversial dinosaur, Ubi Rajara, which we covered in a few episodes. And the latest one was episode 365. Yeah, we talked about it last year with the, the controversy of the dinosaur got exported from Brazil to Germany. And then the Brazilian paleontologist said it was exported illegally. And then this year, the German paleontologist said, well, we don't think it was illegal. And then shortly after that, the description of it got retracted from the journal. Yeah, the most recent update is there are four scientists wrote up a letter published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution about the moral and legal imperative to return illegally exported fossils. So this is an ongoing debate. I'm sure there'll be further updates about it next year as well. It was pretty one-sided at SVP. I didn't hear anybody who was supporting Ubi Rajara staying in Germany. Mm -hmm. Everything I heard about it, although I heard from a lot more Brazilian paleontologists than German paleontologists, but yeah, I think the consensus is pretty much that it should probably be returned to Brazil. So I'm expecting that to happen within the next few years. Although who knows? Yeah. Sometimes people hold on to things in museums for a really long time that they shouldn't. And then on a lighter note, one of my favorite fun facts, which we covered in episode 335, was that there are around 2.5 billion T-Rex that ever lived. I looked it up the other day. There have been over 100 billion humans. So we already way beat out T-Rex. <laughs> right. Well, depending what the model they used, there could have been more T-Rex. And just for reference, the range was that there could be as few as 140 million T-Rex and as many as 42 billion T-Rex. Yeah, so even on the upper end, there have been at least twice as many people. Yeah. In a much shorter time period. We sure know how to reproduce better than T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 
But it's crazy when you think about the number of T-Rex specimens that have been found so far. That's in the double digits. And then there might have been two and a half billion that lived. <laughs> yeah. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, a Silosaurus, which was a request from Crovia Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a basal sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now Clifton, Bristol, England. A Silosaurus walked on two legs and it had a long tail and it had short neural spines on its back. It's estimated to be 6.7 feet or about 2 meters long and weigh 55 pounds or 25 kilograms. The fossils were found back in 1834 and they include part of the torso, back vertebrae, ribs, gastralia, shoulder girdle, humeri, part of the forearm, hand, and then more bones later were referred to as silosaurus, and that includes bones from the neck, tail, pelvis, arm, and leg, and those might belong to the holotype. So what are we missing at that point? We're missing hands? Yeah, we've got, there's some hands. How about feet? Yes, missing some of the feet. And the skull, I think. I don't think you mentioned any skull. Yeah, the skull. So pretty good. Yeah. It was described in 1836 by Henry Riley and Samuel Stutchbury. Originally, it was described as Thecodontosaurus. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking, 1836, I should have heard of this. <laughs> I have heard of Thecodontosaurus. Yes. A description of the fossils in 1836 said that they were obtained by Captain Cotley and, quote, found partly lying on the slopes among the ruins of fallen cliffs and partly in situ in the sandstone, end quote. Now I'm seeing why you said they might be part of the holotype, because <laughs> that does not sound like the greatest and most precise field notes you could get. Yes. Othniel Charles Marsh brought the fossils of what's now a Silosaurus to Yale University between 1888 and 1890. And because of that, these fossils survived World War II. Otherwise, they would have been destroyed in 1940 during the Bristol Blitz, along with the holotype of Thecodontosaurus. These fossils were then described as and named as a Silosaurus in 2007 by Peter Galton. The type species is now a Silosaurus yalensis, and the genus name means unharmed or sanctuary lizard because the fossils were not destroyed in World War II. Mm-hmm, that's clever. Yeah, and the species name refers to Yale. It's like they got an asylum visa as a dinosaur yeah. <laughs> during World War II. A little bit. So Galton found that the fossils of a Silosaurus had three distinguishing features that made it its own genus and not Thecodontosaurus. There's differences in the deltopectoral crest, the humerus and manus, and the ischia. He also found some plesiomorphic or ancestral traits that it had, like basal sauropodomorphs, such as the structure of the manus and humerus and the shape of the brain case. In 2020, Antonio Bolel and others redescribed Thecodontosaurus antiquus based on new material found in Titherington, England. They discussed the quote questionable validity of Asylosaurus yellensis. They said that the deltal pectoral crest wasn't a valid distinguishing characteristic because Thecodontosaurus and Pantadraco, which Pantadraco was also formerly Thecodontosaurus, those specimens had incomplete crests. And the tip of the crest 
it's pretty easy to be distorted through taphonomy. Mm, and that's where the unique feature was? Yes. So it's possible that what's thought to be this unique feature in a stylosaurus is because of the way it was fossilized and not actually a unique feature. They had the same issue with the humerus and the way that the manis looks in a stylosaurus, they said, is similar to other basal sauropodomorphs like Eoraptor and Sarasaurus. And they said the third character was, quote, based on ischium fragments that were tentatively referred to a stylosaurus without any evidence, end quote. Harsh. Mm-hmm. So they concluded that none of the three characters were enough for a stylosaurus to be considered a valid genus and said that a stylosaurus yellensis was, quote, a taxon of highly questionable validity, end quote. That's Th- a bummer. It's such a cool name. Yeah. They also doubted the validity of Pantadrago. Wow. Thecodontosaurus is going to be the last one standing. Could be. Bringing them all back, lumping them all back together. <laughs> I guess so. So other animals that lived around the same time and place as Asylosaurus included theropods, phytosaurs, sharks, fish, crocodilomorphs, and lizards. And our fun facts of the day, <laughs> my two favorites. One's from episode 330, and that is that there is a nanotyrannus equivalent of Tarbosaurus. Oh, yeah. So it's the same thing how Nanotyrannus is a small tyrannosaur or a small tyrannosaurus, usually considered a juvenile T-Rex. But for Tarbosaurus, there's the dinosaur Shanshanosaurus, which is usually considered to be a juvenile Tarbosaurus. I just think that's fun because there are so many similarities between Tarbosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, and mix-ups. Yep. And they both have their own juvenile slash maybe unique species. (laughs) And my other favorite fun fact is from episode 334, and that's that Stegosaurus had alternating plates, not pairs of plates like it's sometimes depicted, but lots of other Stegosaurus have been recovered with pairs of plates. So Stegosaurus was just a weirdo. It might be, or it might be that we've found other weirdos. I don't know. But Stegosaurus is a weirdo, at least in one way, and that's that it had really large plates for a Stegosaurus, usually the other stegosaurs have much smaller plates. Oftentimes, they look more like spikes even than plates. Oftentimes, too, they change quite a bit as they go farther on the back. So something to keep in mind when you're thinking of stegosaurs and stegosaurus. Yeah. Good to keep in mind, I guess, if you, you want to doodle some. <laughs> it's true. If you want to go down the Erictodromius burrow, with me on those two, episode 330 and 334, and talk, <laughs> I go a little bit more into detail. A little bit. <laughs> Especially the nanotyrannus thing. <laughs> and that wraps up our best of 2021 episode for I Know Dino. We're really looking forward to next year, 2022. We already know there's a lot of new dinosaurs to cover. Yeah, we've got Jurassic World Dominion coming out too. Of course. And... Probably more Camp Cretaceous. <laughs> yeah, considering how many seasons came out this year? Three, I think. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. They are fun to watch. And then, of course, hopefully SVP 2022 will be in person. So far, it's scheduled to be in November in Toronto. Which, hearing you say that makes me think it might not be the worst thing ever if it wasn't in person. Because of the cold? November in Toronto is not my favorite destination that's not where i would choose to go in november Mm. at least (laughs) it is pretty and it would be full of dinosaurs so yeah that's a win going into the rom with a ton of paleontologists would be really fun too oh yeah and seeing their new galleries yeah seeing zool again Mm -hmm. is zool there i'm not sure hopefully 
<laughs> Maybe it'll be back in time. <laughs> Thank you again for listening and being with us all year. And if you want even more dinosaur content, more than the podcast, check out our website, inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.